Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It is the 17th of June, 2013, a.k.a. the third Monday of the month. And as the regular listeners will know by now, that means it's time for another edition of the Film, Literature, and the New World Order series, wherein we investigate various works of literature and various pieces of cinema and try to see how they fit into the overall cultural programming that we're receiving, and also how some of these works actually uh, get us out of that programming. And today we are going to be looking at a very interesting work, the one that I'm sure that the vast majority of people out there will be familiar with, and that is Catcher in the Rye. The Catcher in the Rye being the work of J.D. Salinger, Jerome David Salinger, who was born in January of 1919, died in January of 2010, rose to literary superstardom with the publication of The Catcher in the Rye, which was an instant success in 1951, and proceeded to basically become a complete recluse, a hermit, a shut-in, someone who was basically dropped off the face of the earth for a period of decades until his death. And uh, this is something that has very much added to the allure and the mystique of J.D. Salinger, who has gained much of a following and a cultish devoted following at that for in the ensuing decades, probably because of the mystery surrounding who he really was and what he was really up to being completely off the grid like that for decades. Uh, I'm sure you can all look into this for yourselves if you are so inclined, so I'll put in the standard wiki reference so you can at least familiarize yourself with the official story of J.D. Salinger and who he was and what he did, but today we're going to be concentrating specifically on The Catcher in the Rye, which as I say is uh, something that many people will be familiar with because it is perhaps counterintuitively, perhaps even ironically, entered into the school curriculum of many uh, people. I never had the chance to read it when I was younger, but uh, I have read it in preparation for today's episode of the podcast. And yes, it is, uh, it is a, certainly a compelling book, and it does uh, very vividly portray the, the disaffection, the alienation of a young man in 19, early 1950s, late 1940s New York. So it certainly does, it is evocative, it sets a mood, it certainly captures a certain essence. I can see why it is so popular. But it has entered the cultural, uh, the cultural zeitgeist for other reasons besides, other than purely literary reasons, and it's for that that we're going to start taking a look at this book today. And let's just get straight into the meat and potatoes of this, because as I'm sure a lot of people will know, but let's just put it out on the table, this book was, of course, in a strange way, directly at the heart of, well, the assassination of John Lennon. Welcome back to Larry King Live with Mark David Chapman. Mark, will you relive with us those uh, terrible moments for you, for the world, for a lot of people uh, around and in circles close to John Lennon? What happened that night? Well, if you want to pick it up from the night, um, I was standing there with a gun in my pocket. Knew you were going to shoot him? So, sorry? Knew you were going to shoot him? Absolutely. Okay. Tried not to, praying not to, but knowing down deep it was probably going to come to that. Did you know it would be that night? Did you know you would see him again? Yes, I knew that morning, oddly, when I left the hotel, I, I had some type of premonition that this was the last time I was going to leave my hotel room. I hadn't seen him up to that point. That's what makes it interesting. I wasn't even sure he was in the building. And then uh, I left the hotel room, bought a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, signed it, to Holden Caulfield from Holden Caulfield and wrote underneath that, this is my statement, underlining the word this, the emphasis on the word this. 
I had planned not to say anything after the shooting, walked uh, briskly up Central Park West to 72nd Street and began milling around there with the fans that were there, Jude and Jerry, and uh, later a photographer that came there. Okay. I, uh, and then John came out that day, right? He came out. I was uh, leaning against the uh, gargoyle studded railing and uh, was looking down. I was reading The Catcher in the Rye and uh, I believe he got into a taxi. Were you uh, relieved? No. I, what happened was I was in a... What happened before the shooting, before I pulled the trigger and after, were two different uh, scenes in my mind. Before, everything was like dead calm and I was uh, ready for this to happen. I even heard a voice, my own, inside of me say, do it, do it, do it. You know, here we go. And then afterwards, it was like the film strip broke. I fell in upon myself. I, I like went into a state of shock. I stood there with the gun hanging limply down on my right side. And Jose the doorman came over and he's crying and he's grabbing my arm and he's shaking my arm and he shook the gun right out of my hand which is a very brave thing to do to an armed person. And he kicked the gun across the, the pavement and had somebody take it away. And I was just, I was stunned. I didn't know what to do. I took the catch in the rye out of my pocket. I paced, I tried to read it. I, I just couldn't wait, Larry, until those police got there. I was just devastated. Now, the assassination of John Lennon is a fascinating story and perhaps uh, fit for another podcast on another day. But specifically, the relation of the catcher in the rye to this story, really lying at the heart of uh, Chapman's obsessions and delusions, is interesting. And perhaps only interesting in a throwaway sense for most people, because, again, obviously Mark David Chapman was completely deranged in some form, so perhaps we could just write it off as being just part of his general delusions and not of any particular significance. However, as has been noted numerous times, uh, the, the Catcher in the Rye actually also played a, a, a role, perhaps a less significant role, but a role nonetheless, in another very interesting assassination, well, attempted assassination, that is John Hinckley Jr.'s attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Background on Chapman, Mac White. Uh, give us a sense. Uh, let's let's get up to speed on Chapman. Who was he? You know, a lot of people have are convinced that uh, he underwent some type of mind control and that he might have been a sleeper, so to speak, and that he in fact did shoot Lenin. Although, again, there's some uh, contouring opinions here because we have this doorman who was a Cuban national and mixed up with some pretty weird guys. Yeah, so we're going to get to more of that in a minute. But who was uh, Mark David Chapman? Yeah, uh, 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 Chapman wouldn't necessarily have had to uh, uh, shoot Lennon. It could have been done by this doorman or uh, another party. Uh, but but uh, Chapman showed all the signs of having been uh, mind-controlled. Uh, in fact, the uh, homicide detective who investigated the Lennon case, uh, who was on the scene immediately afterwards and arrested uh, Chapman, this fellow's name was Arthur O'Connor, uh, he stated, he's quoted in, in the book by Fenton Bressler, uh, who killed John Lennon, as saying that it appeared to him that Mark Chapman was uh, in some kind of a hypnotic daze. Yeah. And he definitely believed that he must have been or might have been uh, uh, programmed. By he had some Sirhan Sirhan uh, uh, 
uh, uh, I guess, formula around him, didn't he? Uh, I mean, he really did. See, he had a lot in common with that. And and uh, was there a time? Because I'm not really up to speed as much on Chapman. I've read about it, but I must have forgotten some of it. Maybe I'm mind controlled. Who knows? <laughs> but Mac, I mean, was there a time when he could have? I mean, it's hard to look back in the background of somebody like this and know. But do you have any specific evidence that he'd done some time with military, or he'd uh, gone to see hypnotist, or or there was a way that he might have been turned into some type of a patsy or a sleeper like this? Well, the interesting connection with Chapman is his association with an evangelical charity group called World Vision, which a number of That's researchers right. have identified as uh, being a likely cover yeah. for uh, recruiting uh, death squads. Uh, uh, and, uh, the researcher John Judge has done a great deal of research on this, or the Christic Institute. Uh, World Vision, uh, you know, it... it, it uh, it would make a very perfect cover for these sorts of activities, for assassinations and so forth, because on the surface it seems yeah. like such a benign thing to set up refugee camps and so forth. But these refugee camps are, are perfect recruiting sure. and, and in the case of uh, uh, refugee camps along the Honduran border. Right. They recruited uh, the death squads uh, for El Salvador. Well, Mark Chapman, uh, at a certain period of time in the 70s, worked in a World Vision uh, refugee camp for Laotian refugees. And uh, there were other uh, interesting yeah. uh, activities of his, uh, such as when he was working as a security guard in Beirut, Lebanon, at the height of the uh, um, war there, the Civil War. Uh, and uh, that's a very strange place to be, and it's been suggested that as part of the, the mind control uh, process, uh, that might have been where he was uh, blooded, as they say. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense to me, and I've also read uh, some of the information on World Vision that, that makes that a good possibility. What, what about, uh, we're going to go back to James here in a second, I think we've got him back here. Yep. What about uh, using Catcher in the Rye as some type of a trigger? Hasn't that been done before? Uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, John Hinckley, uh, right. after his attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. James, do you know anything about uh, Hinckley also using maybe Catcher in the Rye as a trigger? Yeah, yeah, he did. And uh, John Hinckley Sr. Uh, was on the board of World Vision, which is uh, very interesting. <laughs> and the other interesting thing is that in, in those uh, intervening three months, uh, John Hinckley Jr. apparently... Uh, went to New York and went to all the same places Chapman did during the two or three days he was in New York. It's like they were in the Lennon. same uh, mind control class. It, it definitely seems that way. Now that was a clip from the Jack Blood Show from December 8th, 2005, a.k.a. the 25th anniversary of the assassination of John Lennon, where he talked to Mac White and uh, James Truth about that assassination. It's a very fascinating conversation, so of course I'll put the link in the show notes so you can go and listen to it in its entirety. And I think there is a lot more to uh, to explore in the various connections between those assassinations and their significance. And I think we really can and probably should do an entire podcast episode on that in the future. But for now, it is, of course, uh, interesting and noteworthy that both Hinckley and Chapman were at the very least reading uh, Catcher in the Rye and Chapman actually reading it during and before and after the assassination itself and clearly obsessed with the book which does at least move this into the realm of something that's worth investigating. Why would two different assassins, or seemingly different and disconnected assassins, 
both be interested in the same book at the time of the assassinations that they attempted to commit. Uh, it does at least raise the specter of the possibility that there may be some sort of causal connection here, and if so, what could that possibly be? Well, for people who are interested in this, I would really wholeheartedly recommend they go back and listen to episode 220 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Strange Case of Sirhan Sirhan, where we delved in some degree of detail into the subject of Manchurian candidates, programmed assassins, mind-controlled killers, which sounds like ridiculous sci-fi fantasy for people who aren't versed in the history of the research into this, but for those who are, uh, you will, and people who are familiar with that podcast episode, you'll remember that, in fact, this is something that's been uh, talked about and, uh, and explored in a great degree of detail by a lot of people, even such people as Darren Brown, the famous uh, UK-based hypnotist uh, slash illusionist, who did an entire uh, one-hour television show on an experiment. Could it be possible to program a killer to respond to some sort of outside uh, stimulus uh, that would put him in a hypnotic state where he would commit some sort of assassination. And in this case, they attempted to basically hypnotize and control someone into committing a mock assassination of Stephen Fry uh, at the stimulus of seeing a woman in a polka dot dress. Of course, the exact uh, method that has been talked about in relation to Sirhan Sirhan. And, uh, and in fact, he was successful in that experiment, in that show, if the show can be believed, of course. But at any rate, I would wholeheartedly su- suggest you go back and re-listen to that podcast episode and watch the Darren Brown experiment uh, to become a little bit more familiar with the idea of triggers as a way of putting someone into a hypnotic state whereby they will be willing to commit an assassination or at least to attempt to commit an assassination. Again, it's not exactly clear that Chapman actually did kill Lennon, and uh, there's been a lot of speculation about the doorman, etc., Again, I will refer you back to that hour-long conversation on the Jack Blood Show for more on those details. But the point is, can a book like The Catcher in the Rye be one of those triggers? Well, aside from polka dot dresses or the the uh, the idea in the original Manchurian Candidate movie slash uh, the original book back in the late 50s, early 60s, that uh, playing solitaire and seeing the Queen of Diamonds could put someone in, in such a state... There has also been the suggestion that various works of literature or phrases from them have been used in the past to program um, people through mind control, such as the follow the yellow brick road and Alice in Wonderland being uh, triggers that have been used for mind control subjects, according to some people who have uh, who have talked about this before and take their testimony for what it's worth. But at any rate, the suggestion has been out there for a long time. So is it possible that The Catcher in the Rye has been used as that type of trigger for someone like Mark David Chapman? Well, certainly it's possible, but is there anything to it? Well, let's, uh, let's take a look at an interesting article that was written back in 1992, originally published in Paranoia Magazine. It's been preserved online at whale.2, and of course I will put the link in the show notes so that you can go and read it for yourself. This is by someone going by the obvious pseudonym of Adam Gorightly, mm-hmm. and he wrote an article called, Is the Catcher in the Rye a Mechanism of Control? Question mark. Quote, One night long ago, while dozing off to sleep, I was stirred from hypnogogia by the radio faintly humming by my head. When I heard the name J.D. Salinger, my curiosity was immediately aroused and I turned the volume up. It was a brief news item relating the event of Salinger's home burning down in New Hampshire. The news announcer described how Salinger and his wife had watched the conflagration helplessly from a distance as the firefighters futilely battled to save their home. Anyway, this was the last I heard of the story, which isn't surprising given the elusive nature of Salinger, dropping from view as he did in 1965 and becoming a recluse. 
Curious as to what Salinger had done over the years since his disappearance from the public eye, I chanced upon the biography In Search of J.D. Salinger by Ian Hamilton. One area of interest I had was Salinger's connections with U.S. intelligence. My reason for this line of inquiry stemmed from the suspicion that his classic novel, The Catcher in the Rye, had been used as a mechanism of control in the assassination of John Lennon and the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. If you recall, The Catcher in the Rye was found in the possession of both Hinckley and Chapman after their respective rampages. In fact, when the New York City police apprehended Chapman in the aftermath of Lennon's assassination, he was sitting, glassy-eyed and zombified, leaning against the Dakota building, reading Salinger's book. When I refer to the catcher in the rye as a mechanism of control, I mean in the sense of a triggering device, which sets off a post-hypnotic suggestion, much like the Queen of Hearts in Richard Condon's Manchurian Candidate, unleashing within its mind-controlled subjects the command to kill. According to Hamilton's biography, Salinger was under the employ of defense intelligence during World War II, serving with the counterintelligence corps. His time spent mainly in the interrogation of captured Nazis. Later on, toward the end of the war, Salinger was involved in the denazification of Germany. Denazification could be construed as a code word alluding to the importation of high-level Nazi spies into the highest ranks of the American intelligence community under the auspices of Project Paperclip, the top-secret operation which, at the war's end, smuggled hundreds of Nazis out of Germany. These reformed Nazis were then given new identities, in time forming the core of the new U.S. intelligence, defense, and aerospace establishments. According to the late conspiracy researcher May Brussel, it was this American Nazi alliance that reformed the old Office of Strategic Services into its new and improved Nazized version, the Central Intelligence Agency. Perhaps in this instance, re-Nazification would have been a bit more apropos term. From this point of reference, it would take a rather fanciful leap to entertain the notion that Salinger was part of this diabolical plot, and going even further to suggest that under the auspices of this new American Nazi intelligence re regime, he wrote the catcher in the rye as a mechanism of, con of control to be employed in CIA mind control experiments, such as Project Artichoke and MKUltra. Personally, I don't suspect that Salinger was wittingly contracted by U.S. intelligence to covertly co compose the catcher in the rye for nevarious reasons. However, I do consider it quite possible that the catcher in the rye had been used as a mechanism of control. In this same fashion, the music of the Beatles was possibly used in a similar manner to not only program Mark David Chapman, but the evil Manson clan as well. According to Vincent Bugliosi in his bestseller Helder Skeller, the Mansonoids used bizarre interpretations of Beatles songs to guide them on their murderous rampages through the Hollywood Hills in the summer of 1969. End quote. Well, the, uh, the article goes on from there, but I'll let you explore that on your own time. Um, uh, the, as this article points out, the connections are... Certainly tentative and uh, certainly not conclusive at this point, but it is interesting nonetheless to know of uh, Salinger's intimacy with the uh, the U.S. In defense intelligence establishment during World War II, and and that is an interesting part of this puzzle. But again, does this mean that Salinger wrote The Catcher in the Rye for the express purpose of it being used as an assassination mind control uh, experimental technique 30 years later? Probably not. Probably not. But at any rate, it still does leave open for interpretation whether or not this did have an active part in in uh, some sort of mind control experiment that may or may not have been used on Mark David Chapman and or John Hinckley Jr. So again, I think we'll have to explore those assassinations in greater detail at some point in the future, but... 
It's important to take a look at some other possible interpretations of The Catcher in the Rye, and going back not to the biographical data of J.D. Salinger or of events that proceeded or even preceded the publication of the book, but to the actual text itself. Is there anything within the text, the actual textual clues, that might give us some hint as to what the novel is really about. It has, of course, been popularly interpreted as being about the general alienation and and uh, and uh, just the 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 shunning of from of society by by the youth of the post-war generation and uh, how they felt disaffected, etc. But was there something more to this just general ennui that seemed to take uh, take over people like Holden Caulfield? Is there something that we can use to explain this character and perhaps get a clue to what this book was really trying to tell its audience. Well, according to Stefan Molyneux of freedomainradio.com, there certainly is. Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I hope you're doing well. This is a brief overview of A Catcher in the Rye. And um, J.D. Salinger died uh, quite recently. And I think that the book is very, very important. And I think the book is very clear. And lots of people have written quite a lot about the themes in the novel. But uh, I will tell you the evidence that I think is abundantly clear in the book and what the book is really about, and also why it is featured so prominently in assassinations, such as uh, the assassination of John Lennon and the assassination of Ronald Reagan and, and others. So... To me, and I think with good reason, the book is very simply about the after effects of sexual abuse on a child, his, the after effects going into adolescence. And this is not an interpretation. This is very clearly stated uh, in the book by Holden Caulfield, the protagonist. And uh, I will just give you a few uh, reasons as to why uh, I think that is the case. So he has a teacher he goes to visit in the book called Mr. Antolini. And Mr. Antolini, his, uh, his wife, is much older than he is, um, unattractive, and has a lot of money. The two do kiss in public, Mr. Antolini and his wife, but they're never in the same room together. And uh, although married to a woman, Mr. Antolini is... There are indications that uh, he's, he's gay. Now, and Mr. Antolini calls Holden Caulfield handsome before he heads off to bed and then sits next to him in the dark while Holden is sleeping and pets his head. And uh, when uh, Holden Caulfield wakes up very suddenly, he pretends that things are casual, and he's, but he lets slip that he says, I'm, just, I'm simply sitting here admiring, right, admiring Holden Caulfield. That is a creepy thing to do to a student who's sleeping in your house. Sounds like he's attracted. And when he's caught and accused by Holden of uh, some creepy stuff in the night, Mr. Antolini tries to shift the focus to Holden, accusing him of being a very, very strange boy, which, of course, is the classic defense of creeps like this. And um, Mr. Antolini hangs with Holden's parents, and that gives you some indication of the moral qualities of Holden's parents, which are not discussed much in the book. And the, um, uh, what Holden Caulfield says after he's woken up with Mr. Antolini stroking his forehead and admiring his physical beauty, he says, um, 
When something perverty like that happens, I start sweating like a bastard. That kind of stuff's happened to me about 20 times since I was a kid. All right, so he goes to a mentor for help and for comfort. Uh, he gets some fairly interesting, not too bad advice. He goes to sleep and he wakes up with the guy uh, creepily stroking his forehead and admiring him after calling him handsome and appearing to be in a marriage of convenience. And um, when he calls out Mr. Antolini on this creepy behavior, Mr. Antolini does not say, I'm really sorry, that must have been very frightening for you, but instead attacks him, calling him a very, very strange boy. It's a fundamental betrayal, which completely destroys his credibility as a mentor earlier on. Holden Caulfield says, I'm going to repeat it because I don't know why people have a tough time. Well, I guess I do know why they have a tough time uh, not seeing this. I have a tough time seeing this. Mr. Holden Caulfield says, when something perverty like that happens, I start sweating like a bastard. That kind of stuff has happened to me about 20 times since I was a kid. Sweating like a bastard. This is a low-level physiological response. The body doesn't lie, right? So his body goes into fight-or-flight mechanism when he is being fondled, uh, in the head is being fondled at night. And then there's his friend Jane, who doesn't appear in the novel, but he reminisces about uh, he's playing checkers with Jane. He reminisces about this. Jane's stepfather comes and asks if there are any cigarettes, and Jane refuses to answer him or look him in the face. And after her stepfather left, Jane, after her stepfather left, Jane started crying. Holden, trying to comfort her, kissed her everywhere on the face, but Jane would not let him kiss her on the mouth. And uh, he, Holden also reminisces later that her booze, Jane's booze hound stepfather used to run around the house naked. Uh, he also tries to protect his young sister from the word fuck. So we could go into the symbology quite a bit of the book, but it's very clear in the text itself that Holden Caulfield is suffering from the physiological effects, after effects of sexual abuse. It's, it's in his body. It's not just a memory in his head. It's in his body. He starts sweating profusely. It is an involuntary neurological response to a nighttime fondling by a man. And uh, he gets into a fight with Stradlater, I think his name is, at the beginning of the book, because Stradlater has been on a date with Jane, and Caulfield remembers that uh, her creepy stepfather used to run around drunken and naked in the house, and uh, that uh, his daughter was clearly terrified of him and burst into tears after he left the room and wouldn't even look him in the face. And Holden then kisses her everywhere but on the lips. Holden Caulfield has a creepy run-in with a prostitute and her pimp, and the relationship between prostitution and childhood sexual abuse, both for the prostitutes and for those who visit them, is well-documented, extensive, and very, very clear. Uh, and again, you could go more and more into the book uh, to, to see how these themes are playing out. And it takes a lot of work to me to miss what the author is very clearly stating. It's not even hinted. It's very clearly stated, both physi physiologically and verbally, that Holden Caulfield has been the victim of childhood sexual abuse. And yet people want to talk about uh, alienation and a refusal to grow up. In other words, they want to do what Mr. Antolini does, which is to blame Holden Caulfield for the abuse that he suffered and recast his violations by his caregivers or someone 
recast those as personal failings, you know, that he's immature, that he, he doesn't want to grow up, that he's lost in the past, which is to blame the victim of abuse for the results of that victimization. And I think that is very tragic and that is very sad. And so why is it that a lot of people who've turned to murder find this book so compelling? Well, to me, the book is a very clear statement that uh, sexual abuse is widespread within society, the sexual abuse of children. And if you look up the statistics, uh, you can look at them in my Bomb in the Brain series. If you look up the statistics, it is really chilling how widespread the sexual abuse of children is. And the reason that Holden Caulfield finds the world so phony is because everybody is acting like this is not occurring and everybody is blaming the victim, right? So he's constantly told by figures uh, of authority that he's very strange, that he's lazy, that he, he's, uh, he won't concentrate, that he's, he's lacking uh, focus. Like, so they're all blaming him for the physiological results. And the self-medication, including the alcoholism or the drinking that he goes through throughout the book, is very clearly correlated with uh, childhood sexual abuse. It's not saying everyone who's an alcoholic was abused as a child, but uh, many of those, or most of those who are abused, uh, sexually abused as children turn to various forms of self-medication, of which alcoholism is, is one. And of, I will uh, refer you to the Bomb in the Brain series. And so why does he find the world so phony? He finds the world so phony because the sexual abuse is going on uh, in, in society. It's all around within society. And uh, nobody talks about it. And everybody blames the victim. And in blaming the victim, they are indirectly acknowledging that the abuse is occurring. And that is uh, absolutely awful. That is absolutely terrible. Once again, that's Stefan Molyneux of freedomainradio.com from a book review of The Catcher in the Rye that he published on his YouTube channel back in 2010. Of course, I'll put the link in so you can go and finish listening to the rest of that analysis. And I think that uh, Stefan certainly does touch on an exceptionally important part of the book and something that I did, in fact, pick up on as I read it myself just recently. It is absolutely a, a apparent that there is some underlying theme of, of sexual abuse that is only barely hinted at, but is definitely there and referred to on a few different occasions there in the book that does seem to be underlying this this otherwise inexplicable self-destructive uh, tendency of Holden Caulfield. So I think there is definitely something to explore there. And of course, we will put this in the context of the recent podcast episode talking about peaceful parenting and the difference that uh, that can make in the possible future outcome of the world. Well, certainly if uh, if the, the products of abuse are people like Holden Caulfield, it does not have to go we don't have to go very far to understand just how revolutionary something like a peaceful parenting approach could be. Well, we're going to leave that uh, there today for uh, for talking about Catcher in the Rye. Again, there's nothing conclusive to say that this was used in the assassinations of Lenin, etc. But it is, at any rate, an interesting part of that uh, that puzzle. And I would be very interested to hear your guys' take on this, what you think this book was really about, and whether you think it might have been used. Uh, and it, perhaps you had to have more information about how it may have been used in mind control uh, techniques on people like Chapman or Hinckley. So if you do, please write them in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. I'll be happy to process them, and we'll talk about it during next month's uh, Film Literature and the New World Order series. 
Also, for those of you who are interested in J.D. Salinger and his private life and what may be behind his past 50 years or so of silence before his death in 2010, well, it looks like we may be getting a little bit of a peek behind that curtain as there is a new documentary film that's slated to be coming out shortly on Salinger and a, uh, and a book that's also going to be coming out uh, roughly concurrent to that called The Private War of J.D. Salinger. So this is promising to be absolutely exclusive with some of the most uh, revealing interviews about Salinger that have ever been given because not only was he a recluse but he also cut off anyone from his life who dared to talk to the media about him so it's really been a big blank slate question mark for the past half century or so and it looks like there may be some more work coming in the near future to expose a little bit more about Salinger's own life and how that might relate to all of this. But on that note, let's get to some of the feedback from last, not last month, two months ago when we talked to James M. Pilato about Soylent Green. Unfortunately, as you will remember, I had to cancel last month's edition of this series as I was busy with my new newborn boy. But uh, two months ago, we did talk to James M. Pilato about Soylent Green, and we had a couple of emails in. First from Catherine, who writes... Uh, I'm contacting you regarding the uh, Soylent Green podcast. I saw it when it first came out. It absolutely horrified me, not only due to the physical decay of the society, but more to the moral implications of cannibalism. Also that the people were unaware of what they were eating. This deception was extremely difficult to process. The impact this movie had was that I was now programmed to pay attention to the message of the environmentalist. However, I did not believe them regarding overpopulation. I also recall my professor teaching on the horror outcomes of overpop. This also didn't quite ring true. What amazes me is how very different the worldview is from the 70s. I recall being completely shocked and horrified at the idea of cameras on the street. When this occurred, I couldn't understand how people had come to accept this. I also noticed that people seemed to change, accept change so easily. No thought, no research, only an it's-all-good attitude. What happened? Thankfully, there are young people such as yourself who are who take a thoughtful and intelligent approach to life. I suppose there will always be a few bright lights, and for this I am grateful. Uh, that, again, coming from Catherine, thank you very much for sharing those thoughts, and it is another sobering reminder of just how far the goalposts can be moved with each successive generation that's been steeped in this programming. And that's exactly what we are examining here on this series, so thank you again for those comments, Catherine. And we also had this in from Andy, who writes... An interesting discussion with James Evan Pilato regarding Soylent Green. One relevant link you could have put in which dates back into history is Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, which was published in 1729 regarding overpopulation in Ireland. And yes, thank you for that, Andy. That's uh, that's right for people out there who don't know. That was Jonathan Swift's 1729 tract, uh, A Modest Proposal for Dealing with the Overpopulation, blah, blah, blah. Um, the, the full title is a lot more long-winded and humorous and uh is yes that's a track that he wrote a sort of mock essay uh, proposing the solution to overpopulation in ireland being the basically the cannibalization of children eating babies um would be the way to solve the overpopulation in ireland so people have been lampooning the ridiculous uh, fear-mongering and the ridiculous quote-unquote solutions to the quote-unquote problem of overpopulation for centuries now in fact even predating malthus who is generally spoken of as the progenitor of the overpopulation alarmism but in fact of course it does predate that so jonathan swift's a modest proposal just another literary uh point that we could cast our minds back to in this this unfolding chain of uh of alarmism that's been going on for centuries now so thank you for that andy 
All right, we are going to leave it there for now. Um, But again, I want to thank you for tuning in, and I hope you will join us again for the next edition of the Film Literature and the New World Order series next month. And in light of the ongoing brouhaha surrounding the NSA and all the latest scandals about constant surveillance, I thought, wouldn't it be appropriate for us to take a look, a relook, at the 1998 Hollywood flick, Enemy of the State? So that that is what we were going to be discussing next month. Again, once again, the third Monday of July. So I hope you'll be there for that. I know I will be looking forward to it myself. Thank you again for your time, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon.